I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Rich Text, a podcast about our cultural obsessions, like questions about motherhood and non-motherhood from all of you. If you're listening today, you're already a paid subscriber to our audio and written newsletter, Rich Text. Thank you, as always, for being here. You quite literally make our work possible. We're here today to do a part two. You aren't accidentally listening to the same episode again. (laughs) We're here to go through more of the questions we got from all of you about parenthood and non-parenthood because we just had too many topics to cover in one episode and we saved some for this part two. Today we're going to be talking about fun stuff like money, friendship, general advice questions, all kind of related to the question of having or not having kids. Same as last episode, we wanted to offer a trigger warning. We will be discussing pregnancy, having children, our personal experiences with those topics, as well as some of our listeners' experiences. We understand that these can be really, really difficult and triggering topics for people if you have struggled with infertility, suffered miscarriage, or have lost children. We completely understand that this just might be an episode that you want to skip, and we will see you next week. As always, take care of yourself. So let's dive right in. We were sort of starting to get into financial (laughs) questions at the end of our last episode, but we've got a few more to cover. Finances obviously play a big part in raising kids and the question of like how many kids to have, whether to have them at all. So let's, let's start with how do you financially plan for a baby? That's a big question. I don't know. Great question. <laughs> I have the same one. <laughs> oh, I don't know either. I mean, it's it's really embarrassing to admit, but like I am a bad financial planner. So my, am I. My level of kind of understanding of finances is is along the lines of like don't spend money you don't have like that's that's kind of how I've always treated my credit card like if I can pay it off at the end of the month and that was an acceptable amount of money to spend which means I don't like have credit card debt for example but I also am not super good at budgeting I'm not very good at socking money away so I would say I am not a good person to ask for advice on that whatsoever. <laughs> this is the problem. We we are not equipped yeah. to discuss the ways that you should be smart with your finances, yeah. but we are equipped to discuss the stress of finances. Yeah. Like it Here's is what, Yeah. It is something Here's that causes a lot of anxiety <laughs> for me. <laughs> Here's what I will say. I think that I've had a lot of privilege in my life. You know, I come from a a middle to upper middle class background. Like I've never really wanted for anything I needed. And I've had parental support. It was enough to sort of ease those transitions when I moved to New York and I didn't have my career established yet. So I've always been working in that realm of like, if I can cover my expenses myself, that's probably enough because in case of a true emergency, I do have family there as a safety net. Yeah. And so that has allowed me, I think, to take this mindset that is probably not the most wise, which is like, people have kids and they figure it out. I have a job, like my husband has a job. Are we just going to like, 
not have kids because money? No, we'll just have the kid and and we'll figure it out. And having done that one time around, I think I would have been more aware if I were to do it all over again of how, for example, childcare is going to factor into your budget. Like that's going to be a huge new line item. Research what daycare is going to cost in your area. It's not always easy. They don't usually list it on their website, but you can call around. You can ask other parents. Be aware that like, if you're planning to continue working, that's going to have to fit into your budget. If you're not planning to continue working, you're not going to have your income anymore. So like, on a basic level, you're going to need to rejigger your whole budget around that one new huge expense. And I do think I might have been a little more prepared going into the whole process. We ended up moving kind of like abruptly in the middle of COVID because we couldn't afford daycare and a larger apartment that we needed because we lived in a one bedroom in our neighborhood. And yeah, that's going to be a big, a big monthly (laughs) expense that you're really going to want to figure out how that fits into the old budget. Yeah. And I think that when I talk about the possibility of having children with my partner, something that we're both very cognizant of is like the lifestyle that we've become accustomed to, which is fairly comfortable and how having a child would really stretch us. And that feels very scary. And it's certainly one of the line items on my like weighing of whether to make that decision and when and how like I do think I would like to be just have, yeah, have some more financial preparedness before going into that. But also, yeah, it's just a matter of priorities, I think. Like, if you yeah. are lucky enough to have a base level of decent income, two incomes coming in, then it is just like, how much do you want a kid and what are you willing to give up yeah. in order to do that? And yeah, yeah I think that's going to be I different think- for everyone. One of the paradoxes of planning kids these days is that you want to wait longer in your career, maybe until you're more financially prepared. But the longer that you establish yourself, the more comfortable you get having a certain amount of money, maybe, and spending it in a certain way. And so I look back on my parents and their generation, and I, we didn't live a super, you know, indulgent lifestyle when I was a kid. We weren't going on luxury vacations. We didn't always, we didn't have tons of expensive toys. You know, my parents were not spending a lot of money on themselves. We, We almost never went out to eat, you know, and I think all those things, might have been easier to transition into coming from early 20s when you don't really have those things anyway. And if you're in sort of a more remunerative (laughs) career path, you might start to get established and be like, oh, I have money to play with now. It's hard to start reallocating that. But at the same time, you do have more resources than you would if you had kids when you didn't really have the money. Yeah, I think either way, you just kind of figure it out and you have to decide which I'm weighing like how much do I want one thing versus the other and I think you're also again as we said in our last episode any reason is an okay reason not to have kids or to stop at one or whatever if what you want for your life is to have more money to play with that's also okay the reality is that we live in a society that does not support parents yeah and that does not like in an ideal world we would not have to think about things like paying for healthcare and paying for a very 
expensive private university for our children, right? Like if you're in a lot of other countries, that simply isn't a factor. And so the financial stress of having a child is not the same as it is in the States, even for people who have experienced quite a lot of privilege. Yeah. I thought this question was interesting, Claire. How do you decide to be a working mom versus a stay-at-home mom? This is always an interesting one to me because it's like I didn't think about it very much. And I think a lot of people go into parenthood with a clear sense of how they envision that path for themselves. But some people don't. And some people are making a real decision and trying to weigh pros and cons. I think that one thing that always concerns me is this idea that it's not worth it to stay in the workforce unless you're going to make significantly more than childcare costs as the mother. That the idea that paying for childcare is a cost that is attributed solely to the mother continuing to work rather than as a joint expense. When I think it really puts moms at a disadvantage down the line to have their career sacrificed in that way. So I think it should be treated, first of all, as a joint expense, that it it pays for both the father and the mother in a heterosexual couple, that it pays for both of their uh, ability to continue to work. And it's an investment in both of their future careers, their future earning potential, and their ability to be financially independent should the worst happen. You know, I did have a parent who died when I was young. She was not the breadwinner. My father was, but they both worked. And imagine if it had been the high earning, you know, partner who had died. Imagine if it had been my father who had died and to have a parent who had been out of the workforce for 13 years, you know, or 14 years, 15 years. It's an investment in making sure that you can care for yourself and for your kids in the case of divorce, in the case of a tragedy, and an investment in like the whole family's financial well-being down the line. That being said, it's not what everyone wants. So like if you're making all these plans to stay in the workforce because you feel like it's what you really should do, but you're heartbroken about the thought of leaving your kids in someone else's care and what you really feel passionate about is staying at home with them, I think that's a completely valid choice like raising children is work it's work that matters and i think then the question becomes like how do we arrange our family in a way our finances in a way that we minimize the potential hits that the mother tends to take financially in the long run yeah i think my mind also goes to just like self protection like making sure that you're preparing something to really change before anything gets bad because I I do have friends who really took on the lion's share of that labor and it's real labor. And frankly, when you are a parent who is staying home full time, you are facilitating the other partner being able to do the job that they are doing. Like They could not do that work and have kids without the other labor being done. But I have seen people, yeah, reach a point where their marriage ends for one reason or another, and then they are faced with a, it's with the fact that it's very hard to reenter the workforce after many years being out of it. And so I personally, if I was going to make the choice to stay home, 
I would need there to be some sort of legal document in place that would, yeah, minimize the risk. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really easy to slip into, well, I'm the one who makes the money. So the money is mine. Like, here, you can have money for groceries, you can have a stipend, but that should be family money. You're both working for that money. One person is working in the home, one person is working outside the home. But, you know, it it is a situation that can put the stay-at-home parent in a really financially vulnerable position, and that should all be protected against as much as possible. Like, for how, in terms of how I decided... Again, it's like I didn't really think about it very much, but I do think that it was important to me on a basic level that I continue to have work that was mine. And so I think that was why I I never considered giving up my work. My mom was a journalist as well, and her work was flexible, and that was something that allowed her to be a more available parent to us than my dad was when we were growing up. She did freelance for a while when we were really little, and then she worked as an editor at a magazine at a university, but it was much more flexible work than my dad's, and that was something that I think I also internalized that was like... You know, I can continue to work and maybe there are ways that I can find to make my work fit around my family life. And then look at that. We got laid off (laughs) and and, uh, and now we work for ourselves, which (laughs) does mean that we we do have more power to shape our schedules. Obviously, there are things that are more challenging about not having the safety net of a corporation. But in terms of scheduling, like there is that flexibility. And I do... I feel grateful to have to have that. And I know that that would help. I, I feel it would help me be yeah. able to maintain both a strong career and a strong yeah. relationship with any children that I future children that I decide to have. I wanted to bring up this one really briefly. We can skim over it. What are some of the costs that surprise you the most about motherhood? Oh, yeah. Because I want to hear the answer to this. I have a couple a couple answers. I mean, the thing is that you do expect motherhood to be expensive, right? You're like diapers, daycare, all this stuff. I was actually surprised by how much it cost to give birth because I had insurance that I thought was pretty good. And what do you know if the anesthesiologist is just like out of network? Um, scam. That- this country is a goddamn scam. I don't think I expected to have like bills to pay afterwards, which don't be naive like me, lady. Yeah, we live in America. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there are probably still going to be bills. Also, fruit. Oh my God. Fruit is so expensive and kids eat <laughs> so much fruit. And also, it's like you want them to eat fruit. So you don't want to restrict their fruit intake. So you're just like, Another day, another pallet of fresh berries that will cost me $20. <laughs> I'm spending so much money on fruit lately. You need, a, you need a fruit, a berry budget. My berry budget is out of control. Because also then the berries are there. And I'm like, well, I deserve berries also. You and do. Then, you know, I can eat a lot of berries I know this myself. is the problem. I personally can finish an entire thing of... <laughs> of raspberries the day I bring it home from Trader Joe's. So And you probably should because raspberries go bad so quickly. They really so do. And I get you need, like so, a daily raspberry. I get so upset <laughs> when I look at raspberries I paid way too much for and they have that little like fuzzy mold on them. Ugh, I know. The amount of time I spend evaluating raspberries for mold because you have to look inside also because they're a cup. 
I mean, it's just very time consuming. So <laughs> be away. So birth and berries. Birth and berries. Should we move on to our next category of questions? Yes. Let's have- talk about friendship. Yes. Yes. First question. I feel like this is relevant to you, Claire. Is it weird having a kid earlier or later than your friends? Yeah, I think that there there is this weird way in which we talk about the social pressure to have kids or not have kids. And the social pressure to have kids is real and it's baked into our our whole like I mean, it's how the human race continues. It's baked into probably every society, <laughs> but especially American society. But it's also really shaped by just who's around you. And so when I was 31 and I was having a baby and I didn't have any friends who had babies, I s- truly felt like you're practically a teen a weirdo. Yeah, I was like, I'm ha- <laughs> I'm doing something so weird. I'm having a baby super young. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a parent in some way. So yeah, it is weird. None of your friends, you know, if if they're if they're not in that stage of life, it's just not going to be easy to relate to them on that level for a while like none of my friends really knew what I was going through and I think also if you have kids later your friends are probably sort of done with that stage and you can forget it really quickly because it's such a blur and so your friend has a newborn I already with the three-year-old I'm like oh yeah I completely forgot all of these things about having a newborn And so I think it can be hard to have that kind of easy relation to each other on those day-to-day things. Whereas if your friends are having kids at the same time, you have everything in common suddenly because your whole life is revolving around this, this experience that you share. So it's definitely, definitely weird. But I will say a lot of my friends are very, or purported to be excited to kind of have me as a trial balloon, like, see how it went. Yeah, it is nice to have someone else go through it. And you're like, so how, how'd that go? Oh, things about birth, right? Yeah. yeah, let me know. Yeah, and I was committed to being the honest friend. I was like, no one will tell you this, but it's true. We also got a bunch of questions that were kind of in the same vein. Like, how do you maintain friendships with parents when you're a childless person How do you stay friends with people who don't have kids when you do? One one listener asked, how do I stay close to my best friend who wants kids but can't have them? I have two babies. And that's, I guess, sort of a different one. But I think we've talked about – we've done entire podcasts about the first question of like, how do you maintain friendships with people who are – Having just a fundamentally different life experience from you, whether you are the child-free person, whether you are the person having kids, how do you bridge that divide? And I think it is – it can be challenging. I also think there's something really, really, really valuable about making an effort to do it. I think sometimes when I think about my ambivalence about having kids – I do get into my head where I'm like, oh my God, there's two camps and (laughs) I have to pick one. And I'm very anxious that I'll be shunned from the other camp if I pick one. And that feels hard. But I also do have close friendships with plenty of people who have children and I don't. 
And it's great. And there are certain constraints on the parents in my life, their time, especially right now, because so many of my friends are in the baby and toddler stage. I do think that that shifts around once people have kids who are like in school and a little bit more independent. That time absolutely frees up. Like I do have a few friends who have older kids and that is a very different experience. But yeah, it's also just really fun to be the friend that can dip in and hang out with someone's cute kid and then be like, see you later. (laughs) And we all know you're going somewhere to do something cool and glamorous. And we're going to do bath time. Like going to dinner. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that sounds incredibly glamorous to me (laughs) these days. It is important. And it's hard. I think it's hard on both sides. Yeah, I think often you end up in a situation where both people in the friendship feel disappointed, let down, pushed away. I think that's a really hard chasm to cross sometimes. But I always I always am just like, you know what? The key to this is expecting less of each other for a while. You're not in the same place in life. That's normal. If you have a baby and your child-free friends don't want to swoop in and spend a lot of their time around you with your kid, that's normal. That's not where their life is. If your friend has a kid and now they aren't really that available to you in the ways that they used to be, if they can't always be going out for drinks or brunch or they're not coming to where you are as often that's also normal. They have a huge new drain on their time and energy. And so I think that it's about giving each other like a lot of grace and finding the places where you can compromise and where you can meet in the middle a little bit and and saying like, it's okay for our friendship to be just a little bit less right now. It's going to be in the places where we can find time and energy for each other. Yes. That last part I think is so key. And also accepting that friendships ebb and flow friendships have seasons and i think that that's something that you just grapple with and have to accept especially as you get older because people are just having very different experiences with kids but also lots of other things right people are just you can be the same age as someone and at a certain point you just are arranging your life in in a different way than them and that's okay and also just because it feels like there's a little bit more distance between you and a friend right now. It doesn't mean that that will be the state of that friendship forever. Um, And I think that that's something that I had a hard time really grasping, like in my late 20s. And as I enter my late 30s, I get that much more. Like, just because I didn't have a lot in common with someone for a couple years, it doesn't mean that we can't come back together. And it's like no time has passed. That absolutely happens. And I think just maintaining ties with people, even in those moments of divergence, is what can allow the door to stay open to really come back together a few years down the line. Life is long. Friendships are so important to all of our mental well-being and they're worth investing in, even if the other person might not be able to give you exactly what you want in this very moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's just investing as much as you're both able to in order to maintain that tie. Maybe you used to spend all of your free time together. Obviously, that can't 
be the case if you're in such different places in life, but you can still be investing in once a month, I'm going to leave the kids with my partner or with a sitter and we're going to get dinner or, you know, once a month, you know, I'm going to go to the playground with my friend so I can keep her company while she lets the kids go nuts. And then, you know, we'll, we'll have lunch while they're taking nap. These are just the compromises you make to invest in a time (laughs) when you'll be more on the same page and that will come. I think I am interested in kind of unpacking this question about how to stay close to a friend who wants kids, but can't have them when you have kids, because that sounds so hard. I, I don't have a good answer for that, but It just really tugs at my heartstrings, I guess. It does at mine, too. I think you were talking about giving grace. I think Mm -hmm. that's a huge part of this. And I also do believe that the thick of that experience is also a season. People do come to grips with facing challenges, health issues, infertility, etc., and also eventually reach a place of moving forward with their lives. And I think... It is so difficult when you are someone who has empathy and acknowledges that your very presence in someone's life might cause them pain, even if you obviously haven't done anything wrong and they, I'm sure, aren't angry at you. But that can just still be the reality. And so I think giving grace, allowing distance, Mm, you have to accept that there might need to be some distance. And the most important thing that you can do is say, I'm here. I'm going to keep offering support. I love you, whatever you need. And maybe that's distance. Maybe that's spending time together without your children when you're able to do so. I don't know. It it, it really depends on the person. But I think just offering that and not working on yourself to not feel a lot of resentment if that person needs to take a step back from you for a period of time. Yeah, I think that's it. Sometimes you can't be the friend that your friend needs for that experience they're going through. And that doesn't mean that they will never need you again or that your friendship is over. But you might not be the best person for them to lean on as they're grieving the family that they won't have that was that was really well put, Emma. How, Question. How do you become real friends with other parents? Getting past the surface feels so daunting. It is daunting. It's hard. I don't know if my mom friends are listening to this. Some of them do subscribe. So hey guys. <laughs> it's really, it's really hard. And I think it's it's extra hard when you're making friends around having kids because kids are very distracting. You're spending time together with people in a context where you're all watching your small children and trying to make sure they don't murder each other or (laughs) Or themselves, themselves. (laughs) which is actually more likely at this age that I'm at right now. And so it can be hard to even maintain a conversation over the course of five entire minutes. But I would say that even though it is really daunting, it's I in my experience, a lot of it is just patience and time like you're not going to be able to probably immerse yourself in a new friendship the way that you could when you just like met someone cool at work or at school and you could spend 
long hours together bonding and opening up to each other you have these smaller pockets of time you have these these more constrained circumstances but by like consistently seeing the same people making time for them like giving yourself a chance to like get accustomed to them as a friend in your life like that is how you slowly create that sense of comfort with someone else and i would say when when max was a year old i was like i will never have mom friends that feel like actual friends and 2 years later i do feel differently about that but it just takes a lot of patience and time and investing in consistency with people so that you can just like acclimate i guess yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and i feel like parent friendships i mean from what you're saying to me it sounds like any other friendship it takes time it takes investment but you just you have this added distraction of these tiny humans running around and terrorizing you and each other and themselves (laughs) so maybe it just takes a little a little more time to achieve that that bond and also Uh, in a way it's there's the trap of like all we ever talk about is baby stuff or kid stuff because we have that thing in common and so you're like i'm just making small talk about babies all the time i do um, remember though but... you you talking about how nice it was to you know when you were forming friendships like having people to just go for a drink with and making a concerted effort to take those friendships outside of you know pick up and drop off and playground and do actual adult things with those yeah. people because to me that's like i'm actually investing in this yeah. Well, and that's the thing about people always make fun of the idea of mom's night out. It seems so depressing. But <laughs> we did, Greg and I became friends with these couples that we met at drop off and pick up and at the park. And they evolved into these sort of core groups where, you know, maybe at the beginning, it was just an opportunity for everyone in, in the group to get out of the house at night and have three margaritas and we didn't know each other that well and there wasn't much basis for the friendship yet but that that is a good place to start like it can be enough to just be out of the house for a while and then you do get an opportunity to get to know each other through doing that and now i'm a big supporter of mom's night out even though it sounds so like cliche and and stupid and... i have no issue with mom's night out <laughs> i have an issue with the like aesthetics and branding on social media yeah. of mom's night out it's always like mama's night out crazy like yeah but what you're seeing is like a subculture like (laughs) that allows people to connect that's like this is it's it's embarrassing and it's corny you're absolutely also then i judge it and i'm like i shouldn't judge it i too would absolutely be down for this and it does feel (laughs) really important in terms of letting parents have space to come back to themselves after going through this really life-altering experience, which frankly is a great segue into our next subtopic, selfhood versus parenthood. And one of the questions that we got a lot, and it's certainly a question that I think about a lot, is how do you avoid losing yourself in motherhood? Enlighten us, Claire. 
<laughs> How did you do it? I think I've lost myself. I'm lost. <laughs> no, everyone just needs to have what I have, full-time childcare, a very supportive, involved partner, and a job that they're passionate about. So it's easy. It's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy. No, I mean, I think that the first six months to a year of motherhood, I truly did not know who I was anymore. I think that is normal. And in a way, I think it's almost healthy <laughs> or like it serves a purpose, right? Like you are reforming yourself into a self who has this whole new aspect to yourself, this whole new set of responsibilities, this whole new number one priority. And then you're just sort of trying to rebuild the rest of yourself around that new core. Yeah. And, but at the time, I didn't know that. I'm hoping that this time the shock will be a little bit less demoralizing because I will know that there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel, kind of. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You're just more prepared this time around. You know what's yeah. coming and you know that it's finite. Yeah. I think it's it's absolutely inevitable that you will at least have a season of losing yourself in motherhood, but that doesn't mean it has to last forever. And I think that, you know, there was a point when I started saying to myself, like, I have to prioritize things that make me feel like myself. I can't only be prioritizing sort of idealized beliefs about what I should be doing as a mom. I shouldn't only be prioritizing fresh cooked meals every night and, you know, all this time spent like playing with my child, which is, of course, important. You know, these are all things that are important, but I was completely losing myself in like the domestic duties and the childcare duties and making time for things that made me feel like myself, even in small pockets. I also think that that so models, models something really important to children, which yeah. is that I am your parent, but I am also a person. Yeah. And, and you want that for your kids one day. Well, you don't exactly. want them to. That's what I yeah. mean. You want to yeah. raise children who say, I want to give to others. I want to invest in relationships, whether that's with a spouse, a friend, a, a ch eventual child. But I also deserve to be cared for by myself. I deserve to invest in myself and my interests. And I think that seeing a parent who's really doing that, who's really going after something, who's really like taking the time to do things that they love, that's eventually going to benefit everyone. Yeah. And a big part of that for me was trying to stay invested in my friendships from before I had kids, you know, trying to to make time at reasonable intervals to get dinner with a friend without kids. Yeah. That was just about reconnecting with this relationship that had existed long before I was a mom. And it was about like, finding time to do the things that I really identified with as part of me, like reading a good book or knitting or well, not exercising, but some people find that <laughs> exercise is a great way to do this. I gave up on exercise that didn't fit into the the, the equation. But yeah, I think that staying connected to, to your friends who were not part of your transition into parenthood is actually a big part of that because they don't just know you first and foremost as a parent. 
Right. They they know you as an individual. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, that's such a good point. Like connecting with people who see you can can allow you to see yourself again. Yeah. Yeah. I like that that ties back there <laughs> to the friendship section. Here's a quick question. Are you magically just more patient the second you become a parent? <laughs> that made uh, me laugh. <laughs> Surprisingly to me, I think my answer to this is yes and also no. I I actually am a very impatient person, and I was surprised by how much patience I was able to demonstrate with my baby because babies are infuriating, and that is why they give you a, a long class on not shaking your baby before you leave the hospital. <laughs> Not to laugh, a shaken baby syndrome is very terrible. But no, it's it's very, very, very hard to care for a baby. Often it involves a lot of just waiting for them to stop doing things that you can't get them to stop doing. <laughs> and you just, you do, you you love the baby so much. I, I loved my son so much that I found wells of patience that I did not know existed. <laughs> I remember when he was like 18 months old telling one of my brothers and sister-in-law that I was like, it's weird. Like he's pissing me off all the time. Like he's doing these things that would be like really upsetting, but I'm just never mad at him. Cause I know it's not his fault. At the same time, I'm not like a different person. Like I do. Like, especially, Don't worry. I'm still a bitch. <laughs> still a bitch. <laughs> and like, especially the older that he gets and the more that I can reason with him, the harder it is to, not lose my patience when right you're things like aren't you're going no well. longer a tiny blob you're being actively <laughs> defiant right you're being an asshole right now and i know that you know better and so i do find that the older he gets the more i'm having to like actively invoke patience rather than being magically patient and i'm not a patient person so that's been a fun I, that's why i'm laughing throughout this entire thing because i know claire well and yeah i'm a very impatient person so we will have these conversations where i'm like max sweetie it's time to say bye bye to your toys we're going to go do bath sweetie it seems like you're having a hard time putting away your toys and going to go do bath and then like a minute and a half goes by and I'm like, if you don't put away the toys right now, we're not going to have time to read books after bath. And I'm like, deep breath. you don't need to have an angry tone. <laughs> but my patience is just like, it's so hard. It frays. It and seems really hard. Everything about parenting <laughs> seems really hard. It is, it is a, a daily exercise in the thing I always think of is that passage in Little Women when Marmy tells Joe that she's actually a very angry person and she just has to work constantly all day every day at being patient and I was like oh my god I fucking believe it she's a lot of children yeah and yet she's the perfect mother they don't remember her ever getting angry and that is a really hard standard to meet but yeah no I, I would say yes in my experience the answer is Yes, and also no, you sadly won't become a different person, but I do think <laughs> you that are it, still yourself. it allows you to tap into some reserves that maybe you didn't know about. How do you stay invested in your career with the competing pull of motherhood? Seems this, hard. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Guilt, because I know that Emma's really depending on me. <laughs> you know, financially, you want to provide for your children. Yeah, those are two big parts of <laughs> it. 
And I think it's okay if you feel in conflict with yourself. Like I have a lot of friends who are parents who just are always expressing that it's a balancing act and it is hard to know how to draw that line. I I do think that more jobs being flexible is like a great thing for balancing these imperatives. And I also think it's like stay as invested in your career as you feel like you want to and can. I mean, within reason, obviously, if you need to make money, you need to have a job, you need to show up and you need to do it. Like, that's just fact. But I think it's okay to rejigger what your relationship with ambition looks like really at any stage of your life with or without children and just like there are seasons like we talked about in friendships there can also be seasons in in your work life and as long as you're not dropping the ball and impacting other people in a big way then I think it's okay to kind of step up step back step up step back yeah I think for for me, this was the case, and I I wonder. I think it is the case sometimes for other parents. I think it's been the case for my husband also that there can be sort of a comfort in the natural moment that you have once you have a child, where you're like, oh, there are more important things in the world than my job. Yeah, and if you're like like me and like my husband, someone who gets like neurotically consumed by work and for me it wasn't even that I was like a workaholic it was just that I constantly felt like completely consumed by the anxiety surrounding whether I was doing well at my job whether I was you know contributing to my field whether I was doing everything right and so to have something else in your life that seems more important was actually mentally, I think, very healthy for me. And so I tried to sort of embrace that and be like, I can still try to do a good job at my job without feeling quite so much like I'm defined by whether I'm the best at my job. And that was sort of liberating. Like, it was a challenging transition for sure. Like, I went through a whole period of time where I was like, how do I motivate myself when... I no longer feel like the only thing that matters is my job. All I want to do is be around my kid. That's a balance that sometimes it takes a little while to find, I think, for a lot of parents. I would also imagine that that starts to get easier as your kid is less actively dependent on you every minute of every day. It's definitely something that I am feel very confused about how I would navigate because I have always been someone who's like, my identity is so wrapped up in what I do, that it feels very scary to mess with that, especially now that we have our own company. And it's like, I feel like I'm able to kind of fill in certain things when, you know, you need to be there for Max, or you need to go to the doctor or whatever. And I'm like, well, but how would we do how would we do it? How would we do it if if we both had had those restrictions it and would that be, feels, it would be give and take for it sure. would be give and take and we would yeah. it, the truth is we would figure it out but it's like mm-hmm. when you're a person whose identity is so wrapped up in it it's hard learning to loosen the reins a little bit and be like it's okay and not everything has to go perfectly and if a couple things fall by the wayside sometimes that's also okay i just think for people of our generation who 
waited to maybe until later in their adult life to like get married if at all or have kids if at all work is just such a central can be such a central part of our identities and that can be great and also it can be unhealthy and i think it's it's about just kind of finding that balance and i also i also think like as we were saying with with your child seeing you do things that involve caring for yourself I do think that it can be really cool for your child to see that you're going out there and you're still going after goals and you're still accomplishing things. Like I, Max made a really cute little video when we were doing our live shows. And I was saying to you, Claire, like how cool that he's going to grow up and be like, my mom was like performing. Like she was like out here on stage. (laughs) She has her own show. Like, She's doing all this cool stuff, and she was yeah. also caring for me. Yeah, and that's something that I really wanted because that's something that I did feel like I got from my parents. I definitely never felt like my mom's life revolved solely around us, but we were still the top priority for my parents. You know, my mom's job was the more flexible one. My dad was a little bit more career-focused. But we were the top priority. They were always there for us. They always made space in their day to care for us. But they were also both doing things outside of us. And, you know, I could I could talk to my mom's coworkers and be like, I'm so proud that she's respected at, at her work and that they see how intelligent she is and how capable she is. And my dad was accomplishing things, but he was also there for dinner every night you know that that is like the ideal balance that I wanted to have for our kids yeah and so I didn't want to just give up on being yeah on accomplishing things career yeah and I think that that's something that I also saw modeled with my parents it's like my dad was a lawyer worked so hard but also chose to take a government job so that he had more ideal hours to actually still be present my mom when i was really young she worked part-time but then she went back to school and she started i got to witness her starting this whole new career and really accomplishing things in her new field and so to see a parent showing up for you and also showing up for themselves like that's a really powerful lesson that that sticks with you and i think it it really matters as if that's something that's important to you as you enter parenthood yeah Absolutely. Uh, So I loved this question. I think it still fits into selfhood. It's a little bit of a stretch, but someone asked, like, what are the most joyful parts about being a parent? You know, so often I think because we're trying to correct for the messaging towards women that's just like, it's a beautiful little experience and you were meant (laughs) to be a mother. There's a lot of conversation about all of the challenges mm-hmm. uh, and we can lose some of the the little joys. And so I'm excited to hear your answer to this question. Yeah. I was thinking about this just the other day. One of my closest friends asked me about this. And I think where I kind of landed was first of all, just that the challenges are part of the joy that I feel really fulfilled by doing something extremely difficult and being committed to it and doing it every day. And that makes me feel a sense of like self-esteem. It makes me feel a sense of engagement with my life that sometimes I struggled with before 
where I felt like I could just drift a little bit. And I don't feel like I'm drifting ever anymore because I can't because I have to do this every day. Another part is just that there's a magic in it that seems from the outside kind of silly. You know, people are always like, oh, everyone thinks their own kids are so amazing. And I'm like, yeah, they do. That's what is so great about being a parent. And yeah, so many people have kids. No one's special. Your kid isn't special, et cetera, et cetera. But what a what a joyful thing to every day look at this person and be like, this is magic. I made this magic happen. And every day they're showing me something new, you know? That's beautiful, Claire. It is really really wild how beautiful it is it's sort of absurd you're like everyday children are learning how to talk but the first time my child says a full sentence I'm going to cry like you're crying now I'm crying now it's like (laughs) thinking about it it makes me very emotional because it just you can't believe it's happening you know it's like every day the sense of wonder that it's this continually unfurling miracle before you. And the last thing is just that I was trying to like describe this in a way that didn't sound creepy, but I think that like the physical bond between you and your children is something that I think is very rare to have with another person. You have a physical bond with your partner usually, but often not so much with really anyone else in your life, at least in our culture. And so to have that kind of like, intimacy with my son is something that also feels really surprising to me still that there's like a person aside from a romantic partner that like when we hug or when he nestles into my shoulder or holds my hand that there is that huge like dopamine hit that huge like oxytocin hit where you're just like all it takes is this simple physical intimacy and I feel this huge surge of well-being that like I don't think I've ever gotten from anyone outside of a romantic partner except of course when I was a small child (laughs) and I had parents myself that I had that kind of relationship with so that that also is something that brings me a lot of like daily happiness except now he doesn't want to hug me very much anymore but <laughs> I was it comes say and goes <laughs> it ebbs and flows you don't get that forever <laughs> no you have to enjoy the, it's like they say soak up the cuddles while they last you really do have to soak them up while they last okay so we also got a bunch of questions that felt to us more like just straight up here's a problem what advice do you have and we just you know want to remind everyone we are not professionals. We not are professionals. not <laughs> advice givers by trade. We have no like therapeutic background. So take anything we say with a grain, a whole bag of fucking salt. <laughs> but we are going to do our best. Both of us love listening to advice podcasts. Yes. So we're like, okay, let's do it. Let's dip our toes in. You don't in. have to be qualified to be an advice giver <laughs> in this just day give and age. advice to anyone yeah. these days, whether they want it or not. So the first question is, my husband and I have one kid and are done. How should we deal with constant only child comments? Tell them to fuck off. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, you, in, in a sense. No, one of my favorite advice column staple responses to questions like this is just look at the person and say what an odd comment to make to someone wow (laughs) why would you say that wait i love that (laughs) what i think just quietly what an 
What an odd comment. Yeah, what, what a strange question. thing to say. Oh, what a strange thing to say, huh? Maybe that feels a little aggressive okay. to you. It might, in certain contexts, not be something you're comfortable saying, but that is one that I enjoy as wow. a slightly a slightly Honestly, shadier fuck off. That's incredible. I absolutely love that. Just throw it right on the other person, because that is what you're talking about here, right? You're talking about other people projecting their judgments and insecurities onto your life choices because they want their life choices to feel validated and their biases to feel validated. And I think around children is an area that people feel very free to project (laughs) onto other people. And so, yeah, I think that that is one great way to respond. I think you can also, if it's something that's recurring and you have a closer relationship with the person, you can say like, I really... I really appreciate that you have strong feelings on this topic and that's totally fine. But like we made a decision and we feel really great about it. So Mm -hmm. I don't really think there's anything left to say. Yeah. I think that because the number of children you have, like having children at all, is such an often difficult choice to make. People do come up with very strongly held rationalizations for why they made that decision and then they like wield them at each other it's true and so i find myself bridling when i hear people talking about the advantages of only having one child oh we're so excited to like devote all of ourselves to just this one child we love our child so much we couldn't imagine and because that ends up feeling like oh, you think I I made a bad decision to have more than one child. And then I'm like, oh, well, I think it's so important to have siblings and you learn to compromise and like blah, 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 blah. And, and you're like, wait, what if everyone could just do whatever the fuck they want? And it's yeah. probably going to be fine if it's the choice that's right for your family. <laughs> right. There are lots of people out there who are only children or who have siblings we're all fine, more or less. Like, <laughs> And if we're not fine, it's not because of that. <laughs> like, right. It's the decision that w- that you made that was right for your family. And often, if it's, if it's something that's not directed at you, but it's just bugging you, which I fully understand, like someone's just like making comments like, oh, you know how only children are, it might even be the the easiest approach in that moment to just quietly say to yourself like this person is just projecting very hard and it has nothing to do with me and, and my you extremely can good choices yourself. you can remove <laughs> yourself from a conversation if it's not directed specifically yeah, at you just exactly. like oh, well goodbye yeah i'm not i won't be engaging in this <laughs> <won't>. anymore <laughs> that's quite you enough can for me monologue to yourself yeah there is this weird idea that exactly two children is the right number of children that I at, at least in certain parts of the country, and I know that only children in particular, there is a stigma. And I'm just like, I don't understand where we come up with these extremely rigid ideas. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. It's ridiculous because you can have – there's so many other factors that go into how a child is going to turn out in adulthood. And this is just one of a million factors. And yeah. if, you, if first of all, if you have no concerns about your choices, then everyone can truly fuck off. Yeah. If you've internalized, you know, anxieties about having just one kid, then you can make other choices that will fill in any gaps you feel exist. I don't know. Go on trips with other families. Create strong friendships for your children that you refer to as like their cousins. I think I bridled at this question because I 
have had a lot of conversations with myself and I feel pretty (laughs) strongly that if I have any kids, I'll probably only have one. And so I'm like preemptively angry at people who judge (laughs) that, even though I might also have zero. I'm also angry at people who judge having no kids. Everyone should just (laughs) shut the fuck up and stop judging each other and do what feels right for them. Yeah. But I I agree. I think sometimes people are like, oh, we should give our kids siblings. And then they see other people not giving their kids siblings. And they're like, well, they they should have had to do what I had to do. And go through the misery of having a second child. Yeah, these people can be told to fuck off, in my opinion. Do you have advice on handling the conversation about kids with a partner who has a different preference? Oof. This is very difficult. I would say gently but firmly. Yeah. I think that it is important to move forward in a relationship with all of your cards on the table. And I think so I think you need to dive headfirst into a very specific conversation about what your hard lines are when it comes to children and what your partner's hard lines are. Because I think there is a difference between being with someone who both of you have flexibility. You might have like a preference, but it's not strong. But if you have like a need, like I need to have children and my partner needs not to, then I think that that is a very fair reason to say this relationship actually shouldn't go further because we both should be able to get what we need. Yeah. I would say the thing that always concerns me is a lack of honesty and openness about this, a sense of like, maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe I'll change my mind. And Allowing that time to sort of trickle away, hoping that the other person will just meet you where you are. I think it's really important that you're speaking extremely openly and that you're trying to push yourselves to get to a point of clarity about what you're both comfortable with. If you're constantly having this conversation and saying, like, I really want to have kids, and he's like, maybe, maybe not – I do think that you need to be able to have a clear communication of, well, we need to decide sooner rather than later. Like, we need to get to a place of clarity. We can't leave this up in the air indefinitely because then you find yourself in a really tough position when and I think in, in terms that of doesn't like, work out. Yeah, abs- I completely agree. And I think in terms of opening the door to that conversation, you just have to sit your partner down and say like, hey – This thing has been on my mind, and I realize that we haven't had just a really straightforward conversation about this topic in a while. I know we've danced around it, and I just really, really want us to be on the same page as we get more serious, as we move forward. And so I would love to hear what your thoughts are as of now and what you want for the future. And I think just being really direct is is very important here and also be- being willing to walk away from that relationship. And if you are someone who feels like me, like they could go either way, then you still need to understand what your partner wants. And I think your reaction to their feelings on it will tell you a lot. But if you're truly ambivalent, then I think it's okay to be like, well, I'll just see where my partner is at on this in five years because the most important thing to me is being in this partnership. And whether that means that 
we will have kids, whether that means that we won't, I'm good either way. But you have to be honest with yourself. Yeah. I'm almost 35. Do I freeze my eggs or spend the money all myself? We actually got a few questions about egg freezing. Should I freeze my eggs if I'm neutral about having kids in my late 20s? I'm 32 and married and think about kids every day. Growing up, I wanted them, but now I feel like I finally have my life together and just don't feel the desire I thought I would. Do I freeze my eggs in case I change my mind? These (sighs) questions all feel very appropriate to be put together. And I would say the answer to that question changes depending on what you want. If you are sure that you want children and you aren't in the position to begin trying to have them right now and you can afford to freeze your eggs, hell yeah, I think you should do it. I think it's something that there have been so many strides in that area recently. Frankly, I think if I had been like a decade younger You know, more and more companies are offering assistance with this. So I would say really like check in with your benefits and see if there's any way to get a discount on this procedure or if you have a fertility credit as part of your benefits that can be used towards that. I think you should take advantage of it as as soon as you can. I also think that if you're like, again, I'm good either way, then you should weigh whether you want to put your body through what can be a very invasive and physically taxing process. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a tough one because, of course, egg freezing is not without physical, emotional, financial cost. And also, obviously, if you use those eggs, you still have to go through IVF on the other end. Yeah. And- <laughs> You know, a, a lot of times, you know, the your fertility window does not just like close at 36, you know, so you might freeze your eggs and then conceive naturally in your late 30s, early 40s. That's actually but- why I ended up not freezing my eggs. So as I alluded to in our last episode, it's something that I really considered. I had a ton of friends doing it during COVID because it was just an easy time. You're like, well, I'm stuck at home anyway. Might Might as as well well. go through this thing. And I was kind of weighing like, I feel this ambivalence. I like the idea of having this safety net, but also paying for it completely out of pocket was going to be Mm -hmm. very, very expensive. And because I wasn't sure even if I wanted to have kids, I decided against it. I also spoke to a doctor who basically said, like, we would still, in the next few years, if you decide this is something you'd want to do, we would still tell you to try naturally for a year. And because I was with the person that I thought I would or would not have kids with, I made the calculus to be like, well, I'm just going to roll the dice if we decide to do this and just try and deal with things later. I also, though, have friends who were still dating when they froze their eggs and it just took an emotional weight Mm. off of their shoulders just to feel like okay i have this little investment tucked away and i don't have to put even more pressure on myself to find a partner right now and start having a kid with them if that's something that i want to do and so i do think that having this procedure available like if i had worked at a company that would have paid for me to freeze my eggs i 100 percent would have done it yeah. Even if I was ambivalent, because it's just if if someone's going to cover this for you and you feel that your body can is able to physically go through that, 
I would do it. I would also say if you are like married and still unsure, but you and your partner both want to like reserve the right to kind of tap into that option down the road, then I would say freeze embryos. Yeah, because there's a higher uh, success rate. Higher success rate. Yeah. Which is the thing about egg freezing is it doesn't always work. It's imperfect because, shocker, they really didn't invest a lot in research on (laughs) women's and birthing people's bodies for a long time. Yeah. So, I yeah, I think that this is, again, it's a very personal question. If you just want permission to spend the money on yourself, but you feel like there is this expectation as a woman in your late 20s and your 30s to fuck, fuck it. Like, if you don't feel really genuinely personally concerned that you're going to be 40 and want a kid and not be able to and and be filled with regret if that's not like really a deeply personal concern of yours you have every permission to not spend some of your discretionary income on egg freezing i do think there was this this sort of idea when it became broadly available that was like well everyone should just do it like you're a woman you need to preserve your fertility just do and it you're like you, wait do you you don't uh, have to you if don't. you don't you actually to. don't you actually really don't yeah uh, yeah you just really have to try to do that want. future casting thing and be like if i'm like 39 40 43 and i want a kid or i want to try having a kid and it's not working how do i think yes. i will feel about this decision i know it's hard to do but I think that's that's all you can really go on. I don't think there's any hard and fast rule. Similar question. How should you approach serious dating in your late 20s when you're not sure if you want kids? Be honest. Radical honesty. Be, be Truly, be really honest. You know, I don't think it's something you need to bring up on date one. But I think once you have identified that you might actually be interested in someone – it can be worth just letting them know <laughs> that yeah. you're ambivalent. And and I also think that often, especially early in a relationship, it's actually oddly less scary to state some of these big preferences because it doesn't feel personal to the two of you yet. You're not right. like locked in on each other. So it's just like, you're yeah, not this being is like, the thing oh, I want. Do you love me more than you love any potential future kids you can have? Right. <laughs> which feels like a very weighted way to have that conversation yeah so, and it can just be a good way to weed people out yeah that's the thing i never had these conversations because i knew i wanted kids and i brought it up really early i'm sure i talked about it with greg on one of our first dates because and i was 24 like it wasn't something that i was planning on doing anytime soon but i was like i don't want to have this conversation Right, you're like, you, you knew this. You knew this going in about me. And yeah, yeah, I I feel the same way. Like early on when Adam and I I think we did talk about like marriage kids, like, oh yeah, these are things we're open to, but neither of us was like, we need them. Yeah. Um, and just and because s- you're ambivalent doesn't mean that it's not an important thing, which is why you were still talking about it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Because you still just want to be on the same page as your partner and you want to put it out there before it becomes an issue. And beyond that, that's all you can really do is put it out there because unless you're with someone or you personally are trying to like make that decision 
in the next year. Otherwise, you're just you're just dating someone. You're just trying to figure out if you fit together and in what ways you fit together and what it looks like to develop a long-term intimacy with someone. And all of that is separate from the kid's question. Yeah. And, you know, by having that conversation, maybe that's a way that that you can also be working through what you really want. And I think yeah. it is a really hard decision to make that you end up having to make at some point. And so being able to have that conversation in tandem with your partners, I think, is really important. Oh, this is a sad one. And advice for someone worried about starting to try to get pregnant in an anti-abortion state. This, this is so scary. And yeah. to anyone who is dealing with this, like, I am so fucking sorry that this is something you have to think about. It's despicable. I am so angry so yeah. often at the powerful minority in this country who is hell-bent on making almost everyone's life worse except for basically their own and their buddies yeah and so this is this is a very very fucking real concern and i remember i was maybe i was eight weeks pregnant when i went home for christmas this year home is indiana and i remember being like it's irrational to be this worried because i'll only be there for a week but if something went wrong while i was home for christmas in indiana i'd be in trouble like that it's that's just real. unconscionable that's just that people have reality. to worry about that yeah but the people are worrying about visiting family or traveling or living in the state they've always lived in and 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 going through pregnancy because of these policies i say this as someone who again is ambivalent and also lives in a state that luckily has a decent number of protections around abortion but like i don't think that i would feel comfortable being pregnant and living in a state yeah where i couldn't get that care to be perfectly honest yeah it's it's definitely scary i understand that it's also something to balance right like not everyone can just pick up and move of course of course people have other all sorts of reasons behind wanting to have children that might be very powerful. So I guess what I would say is if if this is what you want to do and this is where you live, I I think it can't hurt to be prepared for the worst and to to research what your options would be. Like what is the nearest state with abortion access? What are ways that you might be able to access that care without exposing yourself? legally and criminally are those feasible options like would you be really fucked or would you be able to afford travel would you be able to within a reasonable time frame get to the place you needed to be to access that care i think it's better to be informed about that now than when you're really in trouble i think you need to go in with eyes wide open and also fully consider that Yes, there is a situation. I have a friend of a friend who, for example, lives in Georgia and had to leave the state, come to New York or Massachusetts to get an abortion because the fetus, the very wanted child, the fetus became unviable. There were some serious health complications. And she was lucky enough to have the resources and also 
the time, it was not an immediately life-threatening condition to her. I think something that I would, that I think everyone should have in the back of their minds if they are making this choice is that if something goes wrong and you need immediate medical care and you cannot drive for hours to access it and you end up in a hospital, that is care that you may or may not get. And we are hearing more stories of women who are put in a position where doctors are waiting until legal counsel says it's okay to go ahead to perform a DNC. And it can get very, very, very hairy. And it can get, like, I do think we are going to see people die as a result of this legislation. And I'm not saying, like, you're irresponsible to get pregnant in an anti-abortion state or absolutely don't do it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying be aware that there is a lot that could go wrong and you need to be prepared for that and you need to know that. Yeah. I don't think that it's unreasonable at all to be worried. I think also on some level, pregnancy is... Risky. always risky yeah. childbirth is is always risky so you know factor it into your risk assessment you know that the the risk assessment that goes into trying to do this thing that is that is not 100% safe and um, and of course like you yeah. could end up in in a situation where nothing goes wrong and you don't need that care and you are fine and happy and have a a beautiful child, right? Like, yeah, I'm not trying to be doomsday over here, but I I just think we all probably need to be honest with the state of of the nation that we live in. Yeah. And, and, you know, along with being personally prepared, we all need to should give a fucking fight back against this absolute bullshit. Yeah, it's and like vote vote in your local elections as they start yeah. to come up because yeah, a lot of this stuff vote, protest, yeah. organize, donate. It's there's that, and then there's the the personal angle of of knowing what your options would be and 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 what you yeah. would be able to do to protect yourself. Also, you can get in touch with a local abortion fund or the national network of abortion funds, and that can be, I think, a great resource when you are trying to kind of prepare and and understand how things work in your state. Like there are organizations that are really doing incredible on the ground work locally. Yeah. Next question. How should I decide when to pull the trigger on being a single mom as the window closes? Oh, this is another hard one. No, no easy yeah. questions here. Yeah. Oof. I mean, it's a very personal question. I do think that it just would come down to balancing all the different factors at play. You know, how certain are you that you want to be a mom regardless of anything else that happens in your life? How much would you regret not making that happen by continuing to wait? And then it's also factors like, what would being a single mom look like for you at this moment in your life? Are you prepared in terms of finances to support a kid alone in terms of where you're at in your career to, to be able to be the sole caregiver? You know, when stuff comes up with your kid, someone's going to need to 
call out to take care of the kid who's homesick from daycare, that sort of thing. Like, how prepared are you to to take those hits at work or to pay for lots of backup care, for example? Like, how prepared are you to manage all of the demands of parenthood by yourself instead of in tandem with a partner? And how much of a support network do you have? Do you feel like you have people around you, family, friends who would be able to and willing to step up and take on some of the the role that a, a partner might and that we actually also all need from our social networks as well. But it would be extra important in this case to be like, who's someone who's going to give you a break now and then so you can take a shower? Who's someone who's going to keep you company when you're going crazy from being alone with a baby or a toddler for days on end? Who's somebody who's going to, you know, come cook a meal for you from time to time? How prepared are you to just like take that on in terms of your social, emotional, financial, professional commitments? Because it is, it is a lot. It's a lot to take on. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Again, I just think like being honest about your priorities, what you need, what you're going to need from your community, and sort of making those contingency plans, like having people ready to support you, and but also. I think that if this is something that you know you want to do, regardless of whether you have a partner, then you should do it. Like you shouldn't deny yourself that experience if it is something that you believe that you can do. And yeah, I have a friend who got pregnant in her early 40s and was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have this baby. And she has a beautiful child. And she also has an incredible new relationship. And, you know, she didn't, it didn't, it's not like it prevented her from ever dating again. Yeah. Because she had a child. You know, I think that especially as you get older, like there are a lot of people who are excited to be a bonus parent or at least open to taking on that role. And so, yeah, I think it is just all about balancing. Yeah. What's more important to you? Certainly when I was thinking about, this when I was very, very single through my 20s and into my early 30s, I came to the conclusion that like I didn't feel that pull to be a mother enough to want to do it by myself. And I was like, if I'm single, it's not going to include children. I have other friends who came to the opposite conclusion when they were having that conversation with themselves. And they were like, you know, if I'm not in a committed relationship within a year and a half, I see 40 on the horizon. I know that I want this. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Because it's a priority for me. And I think any choice is a valid choice as long as you are going into it with your eyes wide open. Yeah. And I remember thinking about this watching Jewish matchmaking as we did for Love to See It. And Harmony was in her 40s, really wanted a kid and didn't seem to be considering doing it on her own. And I remember just thinking how much pressure it might take off dating if she did do it on her own. And Yes. So that's, if that's you're, a real thing. It's yeah. obviously going to be challenging, but also. Yeah. If you're like, oh, maybe I'll wait a little longer. Maybe I'll meet someone. But you really feel the time is running out. That puts a huge amount of pressure on each date. And it might actually be a relief to do that for yourself. And I do like the idea of because this is <laughs> this is what I did, too, in my own context, just giving yourself a deadline 
sometimes even if it's a made up deadline that you give yourself, that is a way to, to just like remind yourself that you want this to happen. Yeah. And there's a point at which it's going to have to be a little bit arbitrary, but you put everything in place as much as you can. You feel as ready as you can feel. And then you say in, in a year, in a year and a half, whatever, if I'm not with someone who wants to have kids with me, I'm going to start the process of doing it for myself. 100%. And I think that dovetails perfectly into our next question. When is it too late to start a new relationship when you know you want kids? Yeah, I was trying to like figure this one out, but I guess it does. Yeah, it does have to do with like, I feel like it's never too late to start a new relationship. I, I agree. You that know was, you want kids. Yeah, I think it's never too late. Yeah. I think that as long as you are following the advice we gave earlier, which is being really honest really early on with potential new partners about what you want and your timeline, I think it's perfectly reasonable to be going on dates and say to someone like, yeah, something that's really important to me is having kids and – you know, I, I also really want to find a partner, but I'm like very open to starting the the process of becoming a parent on my own while I'm dating. Yeah, I think that maybe there is a point when it's too late to start a new relationship and try to play it really cool about kids. Maybe you're about to hit 40 and you're you're going on dates and you're just acting like whatever, like I just that's not even something I'm thinking about. You might not have the time to play with at that point where you can defer that conversation, but that doesn't mean you can't start a new relationship. You just have to be honest. You just have to be honest. Like, I keep invoking my friends because that's my frame of reference, but I, I have a friend who knew she wanted to be a parent, had been single for a few years, had sort of decided, like, just after 40, I'm going to do this alone. She started, she met someone when she was 39 and was very open about, and was like, just so you know, this is something I want. In six months, I'm probably going to want to start like exploring doing this on my own. That's, you can be involved or not. That's fine. But this is just so you know, this is something that I want. And what ended up happening is that they ended up having a baby together. I mean, <laughs> and that's ex- the right. Thing. And expediting yeah. expediting that timeline. And but I think that there was something really freeing and empowering for my friend of being like, this is a decision that I'm making. And it it's actually not up to this new potential partner of mine to determine whether or not whether or not I make this decision. It's my decision. And yeah, he can be a part of that decision or not. Exactly. And that's something that it leaves open the opportunity to have that pleasant surprise of like, we want the same thing, and we found each other, and we're going to go for it. Or it leaves open the possibility of having that honest conversation where he or she is like, I'm not there myself, but I want to keep seeing you or our lives don't gel and you let each other go. It opens up the possibility for outcomes that are consistent with you doing what you want for yourself. I just, it's never too late, you know? It's never too late. And also spinning your wheels and wasting time without being honest is not going to benefit you. Yeah, absolutely. Even though that's scary as shit. And like, I have certainly done that. It's not too late to start a new relationship. It is too late, perhaps, to spin your wheels and be... Yeah, and, and deny what you really want. Exactly. 
how do we normalize maternal ambivalence even after you have kids that you love? So now we're getting less into straightforward advice and more just like big Big questions. questions. We have a couple big questions questions to end on. This is one I really struggle with because I think that it is important that people know that you can have kids. You can even love the kids that you have and you can still feel regret around parenthood or feel complicated about parenthood because I think otherwise the question of regret gets fully co-opted into like a cudgel to use against people who don't want kids. It's like regret is something that only happens if you don't have kids. That's not true. But there's a reason that we don't talk about regretting having kids, which is that kids are people and it hurts them to not feel wanted. And so I do really struggle with the right way to talk about this. I think that the right way to talk about it is in a more generalized way, right? You don't need to like write a personal essay on a public (laughs) platform being like, I regret having children even though I love them. But I do think that there is value in having maybe anonymous stories out there or having just larger conversations about the fact that complicated feelings about the experience of parenthood are valid. And I guess I also think about there being a distinction between enjoying a relationship with the children that you have that you love versus enjoying the minutia of labor that goes into parenting, especially at different stages in the parenting process. You might love your children, but find it so deeply hard to find any meaning in the domestic labor that goes along with managing having a child. Like, I yeah. can certainly see myself reacting that way. I, I love kids. I have a very hard time with the labor that I see goes into to parenting. And I think that, again, having these conversations without pointing to individual children and saying, you were not wanted. <laughs> like, yeah. that is how we have to have this conversation. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I do. I struggle because mothers are people and we are complicated and there are things that we are expected to love and that we that we don't and also then the thought of one of my parents saying I didn't like being your parent is devastating you know you want your parent to be like oh raising you was the highlight of my life and I think both of those emotional needs are valid well I do feel like though some of what you're talking about is Again, having this conversation in a way where your children could in the future identify that you are the one saying this. I do think that you don't have to – there are boundaries between parents and children for a reason. There are conversations and feelings that should be expressed in a private or anonymous way and not in a public forum and not directly to your children. And I think if you can maintain those boundaries but also – feel safe enough to express some of those feelings to a therapist, to a best friend, even to your your partner, that is very healthy. And I don't think that anyone should be demonized for having complicated feelings as long as they're not neglecting their children, right? You can yeah. love your children, show up, and you can do a lot of work that you do not find fulfillment in because you know you made that decision and you want your kids to feel safe and loved. And also still have mixed emotions about it. Like, you don't, sometimes we do things that we don't love and that we don't find meaning in. And we do them because we owe things to other people. 
Yeah. And I think that's okay. That's true. Yeah. I I agree with that. And I think also I I do feel that it's important that we talk about motherhood more honestly in the sense of like I don't think that really struggling with some parts of motherhood is the same as feeling regret. I think it makes a lot of sense to me to try to normalize women having human reactions to the rigors of parenting. Especially when we live in a culture that does not offer good support. Yeah. Other people to do imaginary play with my child, for example. Someone, please. It seems really boring. I'm not going to lie. No, it's like so boring. (laughs) See, normalize it. Normalize it. As with so many things, I think it's in your delivery and I think it's in who is your audience, right? As long as your children are not bearing the brunt of your complicated feelings, then I think we should all be allowed to have complicated feelings. Yes. It's human. Of course we have complicated feelings. It's human. We're humans. And I, I don't think of myself as someone who experiences maternal ambivalence because I don't feel any regret or like questioning about the decision but that doesn't mean that i'm not constantly complaining about elements of being a mom so of course (laughs) because i'm human (laughs) and you love complaining i love complaining too we are both people who love complaining it's like a whole it's a whole subset of conversational it's one of my greatest pleasures it's like gossip complaining these are the two subsets of conversation that doesn't go away does motherhood magically make you not enjoy complaining no it does not (laughs) at all let's end on a very a very on-brand topic yes struggle with i struggle with how unfeminist it feels to be a quote baby maker maybe that's silly can you discuss oh my god actually this could be a whole podcast yeah this is so hard and also I get it. And I struggle with that feeling, too. Yeah, totally. Of course. I mean, I struggled with it. I still struggle with it. It feels inescapable the way that we talk about feminism to, to not start to feel like it's in contrast with having children at times because we don't want women to feel pressured or defined by or confined to those roles and also Um, i think it's it's about the way that motherhood has been so co-opted by these forces that feel antithetical to feminism yeah and one thing that i end up turning to is the idea that there is a very important you know element of feminism that should be about supporting mothers and babies and yes and that that is the difference between the conservative brand of motherhood and and what i hope to partake in myself which is like just because motherhood has historically been used to marginalize women to restrict their movement to restrict their their roles outside the home doesn't mean that it has to be that way and it's actually quite sexist to exclude mothers and to not accommodate them and to not support them to participate in public life and so i try to think of a brand of feminism that is about ensuring that parenthood doesn't limit women just the way that it doesn't limit men and yeah, it that actually benefits men straight yeah men get a boost they sure fucking do <laughs> and 
why should misogyny baby i i also think that it's a neat little misogynist trick to put our that puts us in the position of spending so much time othering ourselves from those women Mm -hmm. who are who are doing that parenthood thing in a way that's so cringe Um, and and i yeah i feel that myself it makes me go back to the maybe baby newsletter the the essay that Haley Nauman wrote on on May 14th about her own conflicted feelings about like venturing into trying to conceive forums and how othered she felt from those women and how it brought up her own confused feelings about what it means to have a baby as a leftist and sort of confronting her own internalized misogyny also under underneath her feelings that she had to like separate herself from these desperate women with these desperate desires to have a child and yeah i highly recommend reading it because yeah even though i have not ventured into those forums nor have i tried to conceive the the feelings of like if i have a baby i'm gonna join this less cool cohort are like very real sheeple yeah breeders i mean i also go back to that thing that we were talking about last episode that that kelsey mckinney said to us about how metal pregnancy and childbirth is and i do think that there is space to try to just reframe baby making a little bit and to be like there are lots of things that women can do that are amazing that are powerful one of them is growing entire humans with their bodies Right. And if men could do it, we would think that was the fucking coolest shit in the world. Coolest, hardest core shit in so the world. So hardcore. Right. It, it doesn't mean, like, we need to rebrand it into something that is hardcore and fucking awesome and also not the most awesome or the only hard thing that women can do, right? Like, right. women can do many, many things and many life paths and those should all be placed on an even playing field, ideally. Right. It doesn't have to be about knocking that one down and attaching to it all the stigma that was actually attached to it by misogyny and the patriarchy which is like this is a lesser thing this is all you're good for because it requires so little and it's barely even an adult contribution to the world like you're basically just like an older child if you if your job is to have children and that's what women are and i think that there is a powerful feminist act in just like we are reclaiming all kinds of like girly shit and being like, it's not worthless because it is liked by women or done by women or is made for women by treating it that way and rejecting it in that way. We are taking on the lens of the patriarchy. And what if instead we could, we could celebrate all of the things that women love and that women do and incorporate them into our vision of women who are cool and valid and deserving and should be supported by feminism and should be lifted up and should have the world remade for them. You know, like, I think that we live in a world where, of course, you feel relegated to this dark, cramped room by motherhood, because that is what the patriarchy has deemed fit for mothers. Right. It is really, really beneficial to certain, to straight, white, Christian, wealthy men. 
Yeah. For people who can have children to be relegated to a dark room to support their ambitions. And we should not be doing that. We should not be participating in that. And frankly, we need to not let the Christian right be the sole arbiters of the aesthetics and branding of motherhood. Yeah. It drives me nuts that it's that wild is so, it's absolutely and I feel like wild it's getting worse i feel like it's getting well, worse i think it's because <laughs> i think because we have there's so much access to these branding tools and it does actually make me think of the duggar documentary shiny happy people yeah. and in episode four where they take a zoom out and they look at the way that this very patriarchal Christian right movement has prioritized white women having babies to then indoctrinate those babies and pass on these values and then infiltrate U.S. government and entrench those values even further into our culture. And one of the things that they touched on was the way that these young, this new generation of right-wing Christians is using YouTube and TikTok and Instagram to get the message out even further. And they've been trained since birth, essentially, to be little branders and yeah. to take the reins. And in our in our discomfort with really engaging with parenthood and sort of taking ownership over it on the left, we've left the field totally open to these yeah. very dangerous people to be the ones to determine what the idealized vision of parenthood looks like and i think that that's yes that's very dangerous i completely agree and that documentary is absolutely terrifying yeah you should absolutely watch Um, it it's really and like explains a lot about what's going on in the world also i think i'd never want to come off as if i'm saying like oh well we actually need to celebrate motherhood and we're focused too much on like abortion rights or whatever but i do think there is this way in which there can be a reaction against the branding of motherhood as so important and so womanly that ends up in this place that's just like, actually, motherhood is basically just a luxury hobby that you can do if you want. And I disagree with that. I don't think that having kids is a hobby. I don't think that it's a little treat that you can do if you feel like it. I think it's an important part of society. Not everyone needs to have kids for it to be an important part of society. We support (laughs) lots of things that we don't all engage in. Like that is the part of living in a society. I think it's incredibly important, for example, to provide health care to people. And yet I don't do it. And yet we need it in our society. Like there are all these roles that we that need to be fulfilled as part of society. And it actually makes me a little bit infuriated that I feel like on the liberal side, it has come to often be framed as sort of a, a nice little activity you can do if you have all the resources and all the time and all the will. Or and a fundamentally p- conservative choice, which also feels unfair. Right. And and so what we end up with is conservatives think it's very important and essential. So they make women do it and then are like, figure it out because we don't believe in like social support or services. And then we have on the left people being like, well, if you really want to have kids, I guess if you have like a ton of money and that's how you want to spend all your time, and you don't want to ask for anything from anyone, you may. But like, it's really frivolous in a way. And I think what I would love would love to see being more central in feminist spaces and the left is this idea that like it is an essential part of society 
children are people, mothers are people. We are part of this project together, and that should be respected and supported just as we respect and support so many other life paths. Maybe that's a pipe dream, but it's, I don't but know. It's a pipe Add dream. it to the so docket. So many things that we want for our culture are a pipe dream, and yeah, just exactly. Add it, add it to the list. I did yeah. want to read a little bit from Haley's essay. Yes, just so it's so good. Good. It's too bad that I pulled the elementary move of taking my inner conflict and projecting it as judgment onto other women. I suppose it made half of me feel safe to distance myself from the forums, twisting my internalized misogyny into a critique of patriarchy. A pretty clever trick. I know firsthand that all kinds of women are pulled into motherhood and that it's nothing if not sane to wonder desperately after making one of the biggest decisions of your life if it worked and be frustrated if it didn't. As much as I was embarrassed last year by my desire to get pregnant, I'm more embarrassed now that it was so difficult for me to stop viewing my choices as a branding exercise. After all, I'd come to an uncompromised decision that parenthood was something I valued and desired in my life, and that I didn't believe it would make me any less useful, driven, or principled. In the same way, choosing differently wouldn't either. But in my consequent attempts to extricate myself from the sexist notion that motherhood belittles women, I'd managed to reinforce it. I was so afraid of the trying, the wanting, the sacrificing, of the brutal femininity of all of it. But those things are only shameful through a superficial and limiting lens. And I'm finally, thankfully, losing interest in looking through it. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's it's a really, really great, really great piece. Highly recommend. And I think that this is a conversation worth having and worth continuing to have because I'm sure a lot of us are trying to undo that knot of complicated feelings within us. Yeah. To this day, still working on it. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I am a mother and I still am, feel complicated. All See, mothers are humans. That's the thing. <laughs> That's the thing. And on that note, that is it for this episode of Rich Text. Rich Text is hosted, produced, and edited by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray. You can find the written version of Rich Text at claireandemma.substack.com. You can find us on Instagram at Claire and Emma Pod, and you can find our other podcast, Love to See It, over at Stitcher and wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on TikTok and Twitter at Love to See It Pod. You can also find us individually at Claire E. Fallon and at Emma Lady Rose. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. <laughs>